Hello, my name is Mike McMaster, and I am a law student at the Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law. At Drexel Law, I am a member of the Federal Litigation and Appeals Clinic, where my clinic colleagues and I represent underserved immigrants in immigration proceedings. As a part of this clinic, I hope to raise awareness about immigration in this country, and this podcast is an attempt to do so. So I hope you enjoy this episode and future episodes, and I hope you learn something new. Thank you for listening. The New World, a land of opportunity for those living in the final stages of feudal Europe, looking to make a name and a fortune. America was the land of contradiction, the land of freedom for white Europeans, while the land of enslavement for Africans, a land of religious tolerance, while simultaneously a land of religious segregation, a land of riches for those rich enough to exploit it, while also a land of slavery and servitude of the poorest classes of individuals here. The first English settlement in present-day United States was founded at Jamestown in 1607. Set up as a colony for the growth of tobacco, it was purely a business venture by wealthy Englishmen. Thirteen years later, the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. This set up the dichotomy of the early years of immigration to the United States, business, and religion. Europe had been divvied up since the times of the Romans, and there was not much left for new money to establish itself in the system. Europe was also a place of deep religious tensions between Catholics and Protestants, as well as internal tension among sects and factions. For these reasons, many looked to the New World as a place where they could set up shop. For the next 150 years, immigration to the Americas was a risk that many Europeans took to start a new life away from much of the ancient apparatus that governed Europe. These Europeans brought with them the slave trade, which enslaved hundreds of thousands of Africans in the beginning, as a labor force in the colonies. Here lie the seeds of American immigration. The first immigration law in the United States history was passed in 1790, the Naturalization Act of 1790. Signed by George Washington, this act allowed free white men of good character to gain citizenship after a two-year residency in the United States. It also stated that any children born to two U.S. parents outside of the United States shall be considered natural-born citizens. This act did not specifically say that women couldn't be citizens, but due to the legal practice of coverture at the time, it was contemplated that a woman's citizenship was based on the citizenship of their husband. The next significant immigration law passed is well known to history, but not necessarily for immigration purposes. The Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 were a measure for John Adams to silence his political enemies. As a part of this law, Congress gave the president the power to deport anyone deemed a political threat. Another early law was also hidden under the guise of immigration. In response to the Haitian Revolution, Congress passed a law banning the quote, importation of any Negro, mulatto, or other person of color, end quote, which sought to end the Atlantic slave trade. From 1790 to 1820, immigration to the United States was very low. At the time, immigration was actually flowing out of the United States with significant amounts of loyalists to the Um, British moving to Canada or back to Europe. The first major wave of immigration began roughly between 1820 and 1860. Europeans packed onto small ships and spent a month at sea or more waiting to see Lady Liberty. Many arrived sick and weak 
and dirty from the trip as the ships and captains would pack as many people as possible to maximize their profits. This prompted Congress to pass the Steerage Act. This law required certain conditions to be maintained by a ship in order for them to offload their cargo and crew and any immigrants on the ship in any American port. It also required captains to keep a detailed manifest of the people on the ship, which led to the first data on the demographics of immigrants. This wave of immigration created a nativist backlash leading to the formation of the Know Nothing Party, a national anti-immigrant political party focused primarily on the Irish and German immigrants. Not all immigration laws passed during this time were focused on European immigration. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the treaty that ended the Mexican-American War, laid out the ground rules for how people living in the territories gained by the United States would be treated. The territory covered a vast range and included land that now makes up parts or all of the states of Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Nevada, California, and Colorado. The treaty granted Mexican citizens living in this area the choice of citizenship, as long as they declared it officially to the U.S. government within one year of the ratification of the treaty. This is notable for one big reason. It was the first time in history that citizenship was extended to a prominent group of non-white people. Even in the territories that this land was merged into, citizenship was not available for Native Americans, African Americans, or Asian Americans. Starting in 1849, the judicial branch became increasingly involved in the sphere of immigration. In 1849, the Supreme Court heard a pair of cases that would become known as the passenger cases. The factual background of the cases surrounds taxes imposed on ships entering ports. This tax was levied on a per passenger basis and was higher for non-citizens. Among other things, the court decided that the regulation and legislation of immigration laws in this country was a purely federal issue. Various opinions of the court cited various clauses and provisions and historical precedents to defend their claims, but nonetheless they decided it wouldn't work if the states had immigration powers. This was the beginning of what would later be called the plenary power doctrine. Following the Civil War, the racialized motives behind immigration law became increasingly overt. While the 14th Amendment guaranteed citizenship to anyone born in the United States, Congress made it increasingly hard for immigrants that they deemed undeserving to come to the United States. In the 1870s, this racialized version of immigration laws mainly targeted Chinese workers. The Naturalization Act of 1870 extended citizenship to non-citizens of African descent, therefore denying citizenship to other immigrant groups. Then, in 1875, the Page Law was passed that targeted the recruitment of laborers and women for, quote, immoral purposes, but was used almost exclusively to stop Chinese immigration. This law was then upheld by the Supreme Court in Chai Lung v. Freeman on the grounds that the court does not have any say over immigration as it is the sole authority of the federal government and mainly the political branches. This exclusion became even more explicit with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Passed in 1880, this act was the first to target a group of people solely based on their race and significantly restrict their ability to enter the country. A number of other acts over the next decade clarified the finer details surrounding Chinese exclusion, including the addition of further clauses to the exclusion. In Che Champing versus the United States, the petitioner was a Chinese laborer 
who got the permission from the United States government to return to China with the promise that he would be admitted back into the United States upon return. While he was traveling, the law un under which he had been granted admission was changed, and upon his return, he was not allowed to enter the United States. Once again, the court affirmed the plenary power doctrine and said that the federal government had sole power over immigration, regardless of the situation. The Chinese Exclusion Act was extended several times uh, over the next decade, a couple of decades, until 1943, when it was officially repealed as a gesture of goodwill to China, um, who at the time were our allies in fighting Japan uh, in the Pacific Theater of World War II. The next major development in immigration was the Immigration Act of 1924, which is also known as the Johnson-Reed Act. It was a crowning achievement of racially motivated immigration restrictions this country has ever seen. Uh, it established a national origins quota system of immigration, a system that would later be cited by Adolf Hitler and Mein Kampf as an example of good immigration policy. He claimed that it, quote, categorically refuses the immigration of physically unhealthy elements and simply excludes the immigration of certain races as a better conception of immigration law. The National Origins Quota System capped immigration from the Eastern Hemisphere to 165,000, which was about 80% lower than the average from even before World War I. This number excluded Asia entirely as Chinese exclusion became Asian exclusion. On top of that, each individual nationality was capped at 2% of the total number of foreign-born people from that nationality in the United States in 1890. I know that sounds like a lot of math, but to simplify, essentially two plus two equals a severe reduction in immigration to the United States. The numbers from the 1890 census were also not the most recent numbers, but they were used to increase the representation of immigrants from Northern and Western Europe while reducing the representation of Southern and Eastern European immigrants. Another huge problem with these numbers was the proportion of immigrants in 1890 to the, purport, to the total population of the United States was much lower. The end result was that 85% of the quota laid out went to Northern and Western Europeans and the other 15% went to Eastern and Southern Europeans. There were also shadows of the future of immigration in this act as well. A preference system was established that separated potential immigrants into classes based on their familiar relationships to Americans and their skills in certain forms of labor. The racialized immigration system established primarily by the Johnson-Reed Act stood as law for 41 years. Those years saw the Great Depression, World War II, the baby boom, and the civil rights movement. Great changes had happened in this country and around the world, and as such, many politicians and advocates believed it was time to have an immigration system that suits the new world. The Immigration Act of 1965, known as the Hart-Seller Act, was their answer. This act is hailed by some to be a missing piece of the legacy of the civil rights movement. While building on an earlier reform, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, its biggest contribution was the complete elimination of the national origins quota system. It also removed all de jure discrimination in immigration law, most notably the discrimination against Asians. Instead, immigration would be based on two main concepts, family reunification and professional labor. Family reunification allowed Americans to petition to have their relatives living in foreign countries to be able to immigrate to the United States. These relatives were classified into a few different categories, um, like for example, immediate relatives. Professional labor immigration focused on the skills of immigrants 
um, with the purpose of filling any gaps in labor supply that the domestic labor market uh, may have. These visas were also categorized into preferences and defined by the level and types of skills that immigrants had. For example, the EB-1 visa, which is also known as the Einstein visa, um, was uh, required extraordinary skill and ability in an area um, for someone to qualify. Athletes, musicians, artists, and models like Melania Trump, for example, have all been able to qualify under this particular category of um, employment-based visa. Numerical limits were also placed on each hemisphere while country ceilings were put in place to ensure that visas were not concentrated to a few countries that had traditionally been able to send immigrants to the United States. The next major addition to immigration was the Immigration Reform and Control Act, or IRCA. Signed into law in 1986 by Ronald Reagan, it was a grab bag of provisions that simultaneously increased immigration enforcement while also creating amnesty for unlawful immigrants already present in the country. This would be the formula used in the future um, for any pro-immigration policies to get passed as laws by pairing them with equal measures of border security and increased enforcement. The amnesty provision allowed anyone living in the United States since before January 1st of 1982 to apply for legal status. It also allowed certain seasonal agricultural workers to apply for legalization under a different provision. Another part of the law was focused on punishing employers for hiring unlawful residents and making the requirements for hiring immigrants harder. 10 years later, the law and order seepage into immigration law continued as the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996 was passed. Uh, this act is known as IRA-IRA. Apart from its catchy and succinct title, there are a lot of problematic provisions in this bill. Um, one of these provisions um, actually created expedited removal. And expedited removal is the process by which an immigrant is deported without any proper hearing in front of a judge or any kind of trapping of you know, process or, or do rights that you know, we, we tend to think of when we think of uh, a court of law. Um, while this process was used narrowly for some time, it, it, it's seen expansion um, over time, especially under the Trump administration, um, but I will handle that in a future episode. Um, section 287G of IRA-IRA has also come under scrutiny. Um, this section allowed state and local law enforcement um, to come to an agreement with the attorney general uh, where they would act as sort of another arm of immigration enforcement, um, which, you know, was a significant step in the expansion of immigration enforcement jurisdiction, uh, as well as an ever-increasing presence of law and order narratives in immigration law. The final major development in immigration law that I will include in this episode occurred in the early 2000s. Following the terrorist attacks on 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security was created, which consolidated many existing agencies under its umbrella. As a part of this reorganization, immigration was now a function of security and not a function of state. This shift categorically changed the perspective from which immigration was enforced in order to protect the country from a future attack. This has led to laws and appropriations that have militarized the border with border patrol and ICE agents, as well as use the use of cyber surveillance on potential threats to ensure that they do not enter the country. While immigration law was not the main contributor to the issue of terrorism in the United States, it seemed easier to focus on keeping, quote, bad people out than fixing the entire intelligence apparatus that failed at identifying potential threats before it was too late. 
Um, I will be discussing the more recent developments in immigration law and future and the future of immigration law in a subsequent episode of this podcast. Thank you for listening and have a good one.